that very fact of Niebuhr, the fact that there are so many shifts, uh, raised the question, how do we tell one coherent story about him? What's the common thread that unites all of those things? And part of why we settled on the, you know, the title of the project on American Conscience is that that for us was the thread that united all those different moments. Um, and underneath that was always this, this sensitivity to the reality of, of sin in the world and in the self. Divine grace begins the process of healing from that brokenness, but that's not something that's completed until the end of history. So we have to keep in mind that grace is real, but the healing power is, is in process. We remain fragmented. We remain sinful. I'm Philip Zoutendam, and you're listening to The Erdcast, an Erdman's podcast about books and the people who make them. Today on the podcast, Jeremy Sabella, author of the new book, An American Conscience, The Reinhold Niebuhr Story. Reinhold Niebuhr is widely recognized as one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century. He spoke to broad audiences, religious and secular, academic and popular, as a kind of public intellectual that seems to be missing, and some say impossible, today. He spoke about sin and grace, peace and war, finding the good in our enemies and the evil in ourselves. He's been cited as an influence by public figures ranging from Martin Luther King Jr. to Billy Graham to Barack Obama. In An American Conscience, Jeremy Sabella tells the story of the life, thought, and influence of Reinhold Niebuhr. As a companion to the documentary film by Martin Doblmeyer, this book draws on an unprecedented set of exclusive interviews with theologians, historians, politicians, and family members. The list includes the likes of David Brooks, Jimmy Carter, Stanley Hauerwas, and Cornell West. Drawing from this rich trove of original material, Sabella explores and illuminates Niebuhr's enduring impact on American life and thought. Jeremy Sabella, thanks for joining us. Great to have you with us talking about an American conscience. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I usually start by asking authors to describe or distill their book in a single sentence. But with a book like this, that's an intellectual biography, at least, I think it would be good to ask you to start with the subject, actually, Reinhold Niebuhr. How would you describe him in a single sentence? All right, Niebuhr in a single sentence. He's the greatest uh, Christian public intellectual in American history. I I know that sounds like a really big claim, but um, I'm actually drawing it from Gary Dorian, who's an excellent historian and is actually, you know, he's one of Niebuhr's best critics. So even as a critic, um, he can step back and he's very appreciative in his criticisms of Niebuhr. And he can step back and say, no, this is the greatest Christian public intellectual that we've ever had. You know, th- there, are, there are reasons for that um, that are unique to the American experience. Um, you know, with, with the exception of our, our Native American population, we are a nation of immigrants. America has always sort of faced this dilemma. How do you build a, a shared identity when you're pulling people from all different parts of the world? And the answer for, for, for many people has been, uh, we, we need religious categories to form that identity, 
right? To understand ourselves as you know individuals and as groups, to understand America, and to understand our relation to America. And so, because of that, um, people who've done the work of the public intellectual successfully um, usually have to be versed in religious categories. Because the job of the public intellectual um, is, you know, how do you talk about these basic questions of, of, of identity and purpose um, in a way that lands for a broad audience? And because of the peculiarities of the American experience, religion is crucial to that, theology is crucial to that. Niebuhr, I think, is a master translator of theological categories. You know, he can take concepts such as, as sin and grace and um, break them down in ways that audiences, both religious and secular, can relate to. And so that allowed him to play this, 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 this public intellectual role that is really quite unique in, in the American experience. What first captured your attention in Niebuhr's thought? I actually had not read Niebuhr until my final semester of coursework as a PhD student. So this was really, really late in the game, and um, I thought I was going to do something in the history of Christianity. I had this long-time fascination with Augustine, right? So I was thinking, you know, I'll either work with Augustine or work with, you know, maybe sort of Augustine's influence on, on the medieval period or something like that. My final semester, kind of on a whim, actually, I took this American religious history course with a professor at Boston College, uh, at that point a visiting professor named named Mark Massa. He's a Jesuit priest. He actually, he's one of the people that we interviewed for the film. And in that class, he had us read Niebuhr's classic, Moral Man and Immoral Society. Basically, from the moment I opened that book, my, my mind was just blown. I had not encountered um, a somewhat contemporary American Christian thinker who, who thought and wrote that way. A lot of times when you're working with, with Christian thinkers on contemporary issues um, and they're working in this mode of crit criticism, right? They'll pick one or two issues where they say, okay, he here are some issues, here are some problems that we need to fix. At the end of the day, they still kind of think that the system is okay, right? That they're not making those sort of basic critiques. And Niebuhr was coming in and saying, actually, those things that you keep criticizing, those are symptoms. The problem goes much deeper. The problem's systemic. And to get to those deeper problems, you, you need access to this Christian language about human nature and sin. And so he was able to take this critique of, um, of American society to a level that I hadn't seen. But at the same time, it was clear that he really did love his country, right? It was just the, the instinct that Niebuhr was following is that if you, um, if you truly love something, you need to be willing to critique it. If we're going to be better Christians, we need to be able to engage in self-critique. And Moral Man and Immoral Society really, really captured that. Um, and the other aspect about that book and Niebuhr's writing in general is you can tell that he preached for a long time. You know, he, he was a pastor in Detroit from 1915 to 1928. He um, preached on, on most weekends throughout his career. And it shows in his writing the rhetoric is really good. You know, when, when preachers are at their best in terms of, of convincing their audience or compelling their audience, um, that's how Niebuhr writes almost all the time. And so that combination of really good, incisive critique, taking Christian concepts such as, 
as as sin and doing a really good job of of unfolding the implications of those ideas for our, for our society in general and and what's wrong and what needs fixing combined with a, a preacher's flair for rhetoric really gripped me the people that we interviewed they all agree on on what i've just laid out but the way one of our interviewees put it uh, cornell west the way cornell west put it is he says niebuhr was willing to sacrifice popularity in the name of integrity. An incredibly courageous thinker, in addition to, to being really talented, and also courageous in the sense that he wasn't afraid of being wrong. On the one hand, Niebuhr understood you need to be willing to speak about things as they're developing, right, before you can really give a verdict on them, because you need to shape how people are thinking about them as they're happening. But on the other hand, you know, as things develop, as you learn, get new information, as you have time to step back, sometimes you realize some of your earlier insights were just wrong. Niebuhr was willing to constantly take that risk of being wrong in order to say what he felt needed to be said in the moment. You mentioned the range of interviewees, and it's a broad and in some ways kind of surprisingly diverse group. It includes theologians like Stanley Hauerwas, Cornell West, politicians like Jimmy Carter, social commentators like David Brooks. What is it about Reinhold Niebuhr, do you think that not only captures the attention of this broad group of people, but makes him so influential for other people that themselves are so influential? Well, you know, if we're looking for a thread that unites almost all of our interviewees, um, they're all working with some form of power or influence. Right, You have the political end with somebody like Jimmy Carter, who talks about Niebuhr helping him think through um, what does it mean to, to you know, have a nuclear arsenal at your disposal as a president, and how do you handle that morally, uh, to somebody like David Brooks, who's attempting to shape a certain cultural conversation, to um, somebody like Stanley Harawas, who's trying to shape ethical conversations. Um, they're all trading in a certain type of power and influence. And Niebuhr is excellent on helping people think through the predicaments of working with that power and influence as badly flawed human beings, right, who do struggle with sin, but who um, also have this, this robust um, hope in God's redemptive grace and the work of that grace in the world and our obligation uh, to become participants in that work. So Niebuhr is somebody for, for, for people who, who wrestle with that sense of, of calling, but are also self-reflective enough to realize that um, they're flawed, but still feel like we, we have to sort of figure out how to move forward anyway. For, for people in that position, I, 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 think, I think Niebuhr ends up being very appealing. This attempt to work with, with power and influence in ways that shape society um, toward you know, some sort of direction that, that's recognizably Christian and recognizably faithful to the gospel. Speaking of Stanley Hauerwas, he's got a great line, uh, both in the film and in the book, and I'll quote him here, but not in my Stanley Hauerwas voice. He says, Reinhold Niebuhr may be so much in the drinking water that it's very hard to avoid thinking the way he has taught you to think even though you don't know that it is Niebuhr that taught you to think that. What do you think is kind of in the drinking water from Niebuhr, as it were, 
that we've received in our education and, and maybe don't even know comes from Reinhold Niebuhr? Well, you know, that, that's quite a statement coming from Harawas, because I don't, I don't know if anybody has worked harder to sort of try to get Niebuhr out of their drinking water. You know, I'm tempted to hear in that, uh, his admission that he didn't quite succeed at that. And, uh, you know, as Stanley makes clear in the film, yeah, he is one of, of, of Niebuhr's most perceptive critics, but he basically says, I don't only admire him, I love him. I disagree with almost anything he's ever said, but I love him. You know, as an illustration to, to how much Niebuhr's in the drinking water, um, he's the author of the Serenity Prayer. And what's, what's amazing to me about the Serenity Prayer is, you know, religious folk know about it. People recovering from addiction know about it because of the way it gets used in AA. It's a really popular tattoo. So in case someone listening has somehow not heard the serenity prayer before, how does that go? God grant me the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things that should be changed, and the wisdom to know the one from the other. And I had no idea that was Reinhold Niebuhr because, you know, I saw it embroidered on stuff or on inspirational posters. You know, later in life, Niebuhr suffered a stroke. And when he was in recovery periods from from his stroke, people would find the most kitschy, the ghastliest forms of serenity prayer kitsch they could find. So it's like, you know, embroidered or, or on coffee mugs or whatever else and just send it to him just to try to try to get him to crack up because they knew it would cheer him up. But beyond something like that, right, beyond writing one of the most recognizable, it's not just one of the most recognizable prayers, it's one of the most recognizable passages ever written by an American. Niebuhr is somebody that just kind of took for granted the fact that um, religion has something to say to public life. And I think there are a lot of people who also kind of take that for granted. And I think Niebuhr is a big part of why. We had somebody for whom it was just sort of obvious that the connection was there. And so he starts commenting about all the ways that, um, that these theological ideas and commitments end up shaping the way that we go about our public life. The way the book is laid out, it, it has four chapters that each outline a particular period in Niebuhr's life and thought, and then a fifth chapter uh, about his legacy. Could you take us through those first four chapters and just briefly outline his biography, where he is, what he's doing, what he's thinking at different points? So the chapters, they are chronological, which doesn't work with every thinker, right? Sometimes to sort of establish enough difference between periods, you, you have to sort of periodize it more aggressively than simply following a chronology. But Niebuhr changed so much with his time that the chronological approach worked. So first chapter is his Detroit years to when he first goes to Union Seminary. Um, Niebuhr wrote in his intellectual autobiography, it's this one chapter. He didn't like to reflect about himself, but he did write one chapter to introduce this collection honoring his work. And he talked about the Detroit years as conditioning and uh, everything that he did after, right? He, he says, you know, the, the, the Detroit years determined everything that I ever thought and wrote after. And so the Detroit years charts his, his time as a pastor, his uh, transition from being, you know, demonstrating his American credentials by being really supportive of the war effort in World War I to becoming a pacifist once he actually went to Europe and saw the carnage of the war, to confronting the Ku Klux Klan, to uh, working with the black community through his, his, his work on the interracial committee. And his standoff with Ford also features prominently in that chapter. So... 
you know, by the end, he's off to Union and he's able to reflect on the Detroit experience and, and writes Moral Man and Immoral Society. Chapter two talks about the 1930s. So it's this, this period of lead up to uh, World War II. It's where we see Niebuhr's theology develop the most, right? It's where he goes from being, you know, sort of a social critic who happens to have, a, you know, this, this Christian framework to somebody who's really delving into these concepts of, of sin and grace and mercy and judgment and, and what it means for, for, for history to play out in the sight of God. And, and, and Niebuhr's working through all those concepts in this period. And it's also where we see him pivot toward, um, to, to go from being a pacifist to being an interventionist. It's tracing why that happened, right? And why World War II um, presented him with something so different from what he saw with World War I that he felt that he needed to change once again. Chapter three is Niebuhr in, in the aftermath of the war. He was one of our most important thinkers in terms of helping us as a country think through what America had to offer the world and, and how to lead uh, when the world order had essentially just crumbled and what that sort of leadership would look like. So it's, it's tracing Niebuhr's reflecting on, on the foundations of democracy in light of, of certain theological commitments. And it's also where we end up with Niebuhr on the cover of Time Magazine in 1948, right? Uh, uh, Henry Luce, who's, you know, has this, his family has this missionary background. He's the owner of Time Magazine. Um, he sees in Niebuhr somebody who's crucial to helping of America understand its role in, in that world context. So he puts him on the cover of the 25th anniversary edition of Time in 1948. Chapter four is, is Niebuhr um, in many ways at the peak of his influence, but it's, so it's tracing the peak to the waning of his influence. He writes The Irony of American History, which is this, this wonderful reflection on, you know, what is America's role in the world now that it's the most powerful, prosperous country the world has ever known? What does that mean? How does um, this Christian faith inform our attempts to, to, to come to grips with that? Where does our faith force us to acknowledge certain limits to, to American power? How do we sort of own, own up to our own pretensions of, of innocence as, as, some, as countries that hold so much power? We know that power corrupts. As a country, now we have extraordinary power. You know, how might that power be corrupting us? He's, he's reflecting on those sorts of things. And also in, in that fourth chapter, I'm able to talk about his interactions with other key figures. It's his dialogues with, with people like Billy Graham, um, with, with the uh, Jewish scholar Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, with, with the uh, Jesuit Catholic scholar John Courtney Murray. Um, it's tracing his interactions with them. His, his relationship with Graham is really interesting. Graham's the closest. This is typical Niebuhr. They're the closest to one another in terms of their faith commitments, but he's also more critical of Graham than he is of the other figures. And it's precisely because of that proximity. Niebuhr was hardest on his own. And I think there's something that we can all learn from that. I'm Philip Zoutendam, and you're listening to The Erdcast. My conversation with Jeremy Sabella continues in a moment. For the next two weeks, you can order the new book, An American Conscience, at 30% off. Click the link in the episode notes and use the code CONSCIENCE.
so we've talked about the arc of Niebuhr's career. And I think that there's an interesting question that comes out of that. And, and I know it's not just my own question. And that's whether or not Niebuhr is somehow inconsistent. So he goes from being a pacifist to uh, being an interventionist. He's a government consultant during the Cold War. And so with, with these changes in position, and in some ways very public ones for Reinhold Niebuhr, is this inconsistency or is this nuance? How should we understand the changes o- over the span of his career? Well, you know, it's, it's a good question um, because as you can imagine, this, that very fact of Niebuhr, the fact that there are so many ships uh, raise the question, how do we tell one coherent story about him in a 60-minute PBS film or, you know, in a 150-page book? The question became, you know, what, what's the common thread that unites all of those things? And you're absolutely right to point out, you know, from pacifist to cold warrior, right? It's the same neighbor, right? But the, the positions do certainly shift. And um, part of why we settled on... The, you know, the title of the project on American Conscience is that that for us was the thread that united all those different moments. He was always attempting to act as a voice of conscience and use different tools in response to very different historical moments. But that was the thing that always united it. Um, and underneath that was always this, this sensitivity to, um, to, to, to the reality of, of sin in the world and in the self, right? For, for Niebuhr, human nature was broken Divine grace begins the process of healing from that brokenness, but that's not something that's completed until the end of history, right? So we have to keep in mind that grace is real, but the healing power is is in process. We remain fragmented. We remain sinful. And there's only so much we can do to to get beyond that. Um, That's a sensitivity that he took throughout all these different stages of, of his career. Coming back to this voice of conscience idea, Let's try to get some perspective of just how much the world changed over Niebuhr's lifetime. Right, he was born in 1892. The light bulb was still relatively recent. Um, he was as close to the end of the Civil War at the time of his birth as you and I are from the end of the Cold War, right from the fall of the Berlin Wall. So he goes from that proximity to something like the Civil War, that proximity to something like the invention of the light bulb, to toward the end of his life watching American astronauts on the moon and having to deal with something like the nuclear bomb. Right? This there's so much change that happens in that in that time. You have two world wars. Um, in addition to, to all these other changes. And so what you have in Niebuhr is somebody who's relentlessly attentive to the facts on the ground. His faith commitments, I think, remain consistent. But as he's responding to such different circumstances, the way that he sees those faith commitments interfacing with those circumstances changes. So in the aftermath of World War I, which was this, this horrible war, um, where hundreds of thousands of people would die just to gain a, a few hundred yards, right, on these, on these battle lines. Um, Niebuhr came out of that saying, war doesn't work, 
and he becomes a pacifist. As he watches the this, this specter of, of Nazism begin to rise in Europe, he's a German-American, second generation. He's, he's, so he's very sensitive to what's happening in Germany. Uh, he sees the writing on the wall uh, long before most Americans. He's defending the Jewish community from the start because he sees the peril that they're in. And he concludes, I might want the world to be such that I can operate on these pacifist commitments, but the reality of what's going on in Europe right now is such that I need to rethink those. And we need to intervene. And, and maybe in this case, war actually is the lesser of two evils. Um, so you see him changing in response to that. You see him change in response to, to the Cold War period and the rise of communism. But once again, I think the governing motif, the governing issue is um, he's always trying to figure out how do I act as a voice of conscience given new circumstance X or Y. One of the movements that he's involved with, both directly and indirectly as an influence, is the civil rights movement. Could you talk a little more about his commitments, his involvements with civil rights, both before the civil rights era in the 1960s and also during and after? To understand Niebuhr and civil rights, I, I think we need to go back to his time in Detroit. So he's in Detroit from, from 1915 to 1928. When he gets there, it's, it's the beginnings of, of the rise of Ford. You know, Ford Motor Company is starting to get underway. It's starting to transform the city. Uh, by the time he leaves, if I'm remembering correctly, I think the city might have tripled in size by the time he left. It, it grew astronomically, you know, from, from 1915 to 1928. And um, with that, he ended up confronting social tensions that he didn't know were a part of American society. So Niebuhr came to Detroit um, basically committed to the social gospel, um, committed to this idea, you know, if we could only be more loving as individuals, right, that will sort of like have this ripple effect and eventually transform society. And the conundrum that Niebuhr ended up having to confront as, as his time in Detroit deepened was the people in my church, they're loving, right? They really do care about one another. But they turn a blind eye to all these abuses on Ford's assembly lines, right? They turn a blind eye to, um, you know, particularly the black community, right? People coming out of the Jim Crow South, uh, fleeing the Jim Crow South for, for jobs up north. Um, and because of housing policies ending up in these really awful living conditions, he ends up getting tapped to chair the interracial committee in Detroit in the mid-1920s. And this was a product of him, you know, there's a resurgent Ku Klux Klan, so he's watching the Klan rise, um, mobilizes against the Klan. Um, the mayor appreciates Niebuhr's efforts in this regard. He becomes chair of the interracial committee. So through that, he, he ended up touching base with, um, you know, all these sort of leaders, all these pastors in the black community and ends up becoming acquainted with, with what their conditions were like and, um, and does his best to take on forward. You know, he writes articles that are published in magazines that are read nationally, explaining why conditions on Ford's assembly lines are so exploitative, gives this his best shot and nothing happens. You know, I think you could actually say that um, the Detroit years actually kind of broke Niebuhr and particularly broke his idealism 
as, as a social gospeler, and it made him rethink, you know, if I, I am committed to these ideals of love and justice, but the strategy of just teaching people to be more loving, that's not going to cut it, right? We, we need to be a lot more serious about um, the depths of, of human sin and how it manifests in groups, how good church people can be loving toward one another and be calloused in their attitudes toward the suffering on the assembly lines or the suffering in slums in Detroit. One of the most astounding facts from that time, I, I think, is that after he goes to Union Seminary in the Northeast, his former congregation in Detroit votes to exclude black members. And that's just flooring. Yeah. And you know, that I think was really hard on Niebuhr because I think he second guessed himself after that. And he was wondering, you know, all this activism I've been doing outside of the church, outside of my own parish, what did I miss within my own church walls, right? Where as soon as I leave, they vote to exclude black members. And so because he had that close contact with the black community of Detroit and and had some inclination of, of what they were going through, when he's at Union, he's able to cultivate enough distance from the Detroit experience to reflect on it. And Moral Man and Immoral Society, I mean, it, the thesis is implied in the title, but the conclusion's rather grim because he's basically saying, if you want social change, being loving is not going to cut it. If you want to bring about real change, you're going to need to use coercion to do it. And he uses Gandhi as a case in point for that in Moral Man and Immoral Society where he says, listen, Gandhi's nonviolent. That's great. You know, we should strive to be nonviolent, but make no mistake. Gandhi's movement works because it's coercive nonviolence, right? He, he manages boycotts that affect textile mills in Manchester that cause actual suffering for workers in England, right? And that's why his movement works. And because he does it through nonviolent means, the affected workers in England can still be sympathetic, right? They can still understand what he's trying to accomplish, but, but Gandhi succeeds because he's coercive. That's the lesson that gets picked up later by the civil rights movement, right? Because uh, Martin Luther King read quite a bit of Niebuhr. Um, at first contact with moral man and immoral society, he found Niebuhr to be too cynical. But I think um, as, as he um, matured in his own thinking about civil rights and how to affect change, Niebuhr began to make more and more sense to him. Somebody like King... Um, I think retained an appreciation for the power of love that might get lost in somebody like Niebuhr. Um, but the way that Andrew Young puts it in the film is he says, you know, Niebuhr kept us from being naive about power and about um, sinful structures in society. They're not going to crumble easily. And so on Andrew Young's telling, and Andrew Young worked closely with King, um, you know, the way he puts it, and this is a direct quote, whenever there was a conversation about power, Niebuhr came up. A letter from Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King names Niebuhr directly. And I think Niebuhr's insistence that nonviolence had to be coercive to be effective helps explain a lot of the strategies of the civil rights movement, right? People being willing to put themselves, their bodies on the line, right? In front of fire hoses, in front of dogs, in front of billy clubs, that's done with the understanding that when you do that and their report is there to take pictures and those pictures get splashed on newspapers across the country, 
you might actually prick the conscience of a nation. You're not going to do it simply by preaching love. You're going to do it by precipitating the very acts of injustice that you're protesting and forcing people to confront them. And I think Niebuhr was a big part of that strategy. And it is important with, with Niebuhr and these questions of race to acknowledge um, he was sharper on some points and certain times than in others. I think his insights from the 1930s were great, really influential. Um, in the 1950s, he, he pushes for moderation at moments where the, the civil rights movement really needed a push forward, not, not to be told to, 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 to be moderate and step back. Um, he was very reticent on, on uh, how, how uh, quickly to push something like, like school desegregation. And so it's important to, to realize he, he got certain things right on these issues, he got certain things wrong. But what I think is undeniable is that he was very influential on the civil rights movement and how people thought about how do you go about nonviolent movements in ways that still affect change. So we've talked already about Niebuhr's influence in his own lifetime, in the 30s, in the 60s. When we think about the present, this is a question that I think a lot of people are asking, and it's kind of a two-pronged question. The question is, is Reinhold Niebuhr even possible now? And the first question there is, in a pluralistic society, is his way of thinking possible now? Is that religious way of thinking credible in a society that's less conversant with religion, less familiar with it, let alone much less guided by it? You know, that, that in many ways is the question. You know, we've, we've gotten it over and over again at our screenings, people asking, you know, where is our Reinhold Niebuhr today? Can we even do what Reinhold Niebuhr did in, in our particular context? And I think, you know, I think the answer is a very qualified yes, right? We can do the same things, but it's not going to look the same. Niebuhr was able to be Niebuhr because of very particular cultural forces um, that allowed him to emerge as a singular voice. Mainline Protestantism was much more powerful culturally in the 1950s um, than any Christian group is today. Media was more consolidated in the hands of a few. So if you had access to a couple of different pulpit, you know, a couple of different media platforms, um, you can get your message out to everybody. That combination of church power and consolidated media power that Niebuhr was able to make use of no longer holds today. However, I actually think Niebuhr does have a lot of resources for speaking to a pluralistic society. You know, we, we forget, you know, Niebuhr starting his career in the 1930s. The 1930s isn't a particularly religious period in American history. People flocked back to churches in the 50s after the war. But, you know, in the 1930s, his message landed. And it was because even people with no religious background could read what he was writing and say, there's something true here. And even if I don't personally buy into tenets X, Y, or Z about Christianity, the way that he's using the language of sin and the way that he's talking about human nature gets at something true. And I think it's possible for people to do that today as well. Yes, we might be a pluralistic society, 
right? Yes, we might be approaching these issues with all sorts of different frameworks, but there are certain things that we kind of all know to be true. We all have some sort of sense of right and wrong. And if you truly believe that the Christian story speaks to something, speaks to human experience in, in, in uniquely effective ways, then of course you can use those categories in ways that will resonate with people outside of your group. But I think the tricky thing is we're, we're not going to have one figure emerge. Um, the way um, Scott Paith, he's, uh, he's an ethicist at DePaul University, the way that I, I heard him put it recently is we don't need one Niebuhr, we need a thousand of them. And what I take his point to mean is you need people who um, are willing to take risks with, with these and use these Christian categories in ways that, that call out these problems in American society? Um, are you willing to do that in, in rhetorically engaging ways? Are you willing to uh, be self-critical, critical of your own Christian fold if you identify as a Christian, uh, critical of your own nation, not because you no longer love your nation, but precisely because you do. The way that, that parents you know, have to sort of be willing to be critical of their children sometimes and the way that friends need to be willing to, to speak truth to one another. We need to have the same posture toward our church and our nation. And I think people in a pluralistic society, if you have integrity in the way that you call out your own, they can respect that. And you, you might get an audience from the people you least expect if you can have integrity in owning your own mistakes and owning the mistakes of your own group. So here's the second part of that question from earlier. If Niebuhr is indeed still a credible voice or thinkers like Niebuhr are still credible, what might he say, or maybe what has he said already, that speaks uh, particularly incisively to the current moment in American history, or maybe the current moment in the American church? And that's an excellent question. And, you know, it's, it's tricky because because Niebuhr is such a multifaceted thinker, you're going to get a different answer from, from anybody who asked that question too. But... I think Niebuhr would, um, would basically say, don't look at our particular political moment as an aberration, right? There's a story that led to the 2016 election. No matter where you ended up falling at the end of the day in terms of who you voted for, I think we can all agree something's really dysfunctional about American politics at the moment. And that dysfunction has a lineage and it's a story of continuity, right? This isn't a rupture. And we need to be honest about the forces at work in our society that have been at work in our society for decades that brought us to this point of gridlock and dysfunction. So if we can look at our current moment, our current predicament, our current sort of moment of hyper-partisanship through that lens, right? and start being honest about the ways that our own groups have contributed to that atmosphere instead of just pointing the finger. Um, I think then, you know, Niebuhr would say you can maybe start to undo some of that, some of the damage that's been done. But the other thing, and this is something that, that people miss about Niebuhr, and I think it's, it's a huge mistake to miss, he was profoundly hopeful. And the reason he was so hopeful, um, it's, it's actually just, it's something that I, you know, I see as being embedded in the, the logic of Christianity at this deep level. Um, 
Christians can be hopeful precisely because they believe that the worst has already happened, right? Human beings killed their creator, right? You do not get worse than that. And yet that moment, right, of, of the cross, the moment of God being put to death by human beings becomes the moment of, of salvation and grace being released into the world. And everything else that happens after that um, has to sort of be viewed through the prism of that insight, right? We have to be honest about the depths of the problem, but we can be honest without flinching because the worst has already happened. So there's nothing we can't face. Uh, but once we've been honest about the problem, we can turn around and say, but there's hope. Because when the worst happened, you know, that got flipped in its head and became the source of, um, you know, redemption ended up getting released into the world through these awful things. And the same is true for now. There's nothing that we're facing that can't be redeemed. There's no human being who's so evil that they can't be redeemed at the end, right? We have to at least hold that hope that that's possible. And, um, but, but the thing for Niebuhr is that we have to we have to be honest about the problem to get through that hope. You can't skip over that. You skip over that, you end up with cheap hope, right? But if you can speak truthfully and honestly about the depths of the problem, about the depths of sin in ourselves and in the other, about the depths of the brokenness in the world, um, that sets the foundation for you to be able to talk about hope. So, you know, it's a two-pronged message. On the one hand, this didn't come out of nowhere, let's be honest, about the sort of patterns in our own lives and in our society that have produced these, these really difficult, uh, potentially catastrophic moments. Uh, but on the other hand, let's not lose sight of hope that is real and that is there. Jeremy Sabella, thank you so much for joining us on the Erdcast to talk about this book and this whole project, An American Conscience. Oh, it was my pleasure to be here. Jeremy Sabella is the author of the new book, An American Conscience, The Reinhold Niebuhr Story. Don't forget, you can order the new book at 30% off when you use the code CONSCIENCE. Also, look for the documentary film by Martin Doblmeier coming to a PBS station near you in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening to The Erdcast. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and if you like what you hear, make sure to leave us a good review. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next episode. Until then, read good books and show some love to the people who make them.